everyone, and welcome to the Weird Era podcast. Today, I'm talking to author Mayuk Sen about his new book, Taste Makers, Seven Immigrant Women Who Revolutionized Food in America. Mayuk Sen is a James Beard and IACP award-winning writer based in Brooklyn. His work has been anthologized in two editions of the Best American Food Writing. He teaches food journalism at New York University. Who's really behind America's appetite for foods from around the globe? This group biography from an electric new voice in food writing honors seven extraordinary women, all immigrants, who left an indelible mark on the way Americans eat today. Tastemaker stretches from World War II to the present with absorbing and deeply researched portraits of figures including Mexican-born Elena Zelayeta, a blind chef, Marcella Hazan, the deity of Italian cuisine, and Norma Shirley, a champion of Jamaican dishes. In imaginative, lively prose, Mike Sen, a queer brown child of immigrants, reconstructs the lives of these women in vivid and empathetic detail, daring to ask why some were famous in their own time, but not in ours, and why others shine brightly even today. Weaving together histories of food, immigration, and gender, tastemakers will challenge the way readers look at what's on their plate and the women whose labor, overlooked for so long, makes those meals possible. Thank you, Mike, for being here. It's going to be good. <laughs> you write um, in this book, you know, at the very beginning in the, in the introduction, you say, in this book, you will meet seven immigrant women who used food to construct an identity outside their home country. As a person of color, I wanted to address firstly, I mean, this is also a totally biased question. I'm thinking of my own situation. But um, is this something your, your own mother did, used food to construct an identity outside their home country? And if so, could you tell us a bit about how it led to you writing this book, if it did? Totally. Wow. That's a wonderful question. You know, I've had very few people uh, start off by asking me about my immigrant mother and her whole food story or whatever. So I so appreciate you doing that. Uh, yeah. So uh, my mother uh, is, she's still alive. Um, she is an immigrant from the Indian state of West Bengal. Uh, she grew up in a village there, had an arranged marriage to my late father and uh, ended up coming here as a result of that marriage. Uh, in the early 1980s, and by here I mean America. Specifically, she moved to uh, the state of New Jersey. And, you know, it was a very challenging time for a lot of, um, you know, South Asian immigrants uh, broadly, uh, you know, living uh, in a place like New Jersey certainly was challenging for her. You know, she had to acclimate uh, to this new home just to survive. She had to learn how to, you know, she had to master this uh, foreign tongue, basically. You know, she had to figure out how to make money in this new home, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, just through kind of conversations that I've had with her throughout my life, I gathered that, you know, food was maybe one, uh, you know, element that really tied her back to her roots because, you know, being in an arranged marriage, uh, she essentially was cut off from <laughs> her immediate family and instead uh, kind of told that, you know, these strangers are now your family members. And one way to kind of, you know, tether her uh, in this sort of really unfamiliar kind of situation uh, was for her to cook. And even though she was cooking as kind of care work and doing that for others around her uh, and maybe sort of feeding herself in the process as well. You know, I do think that making uh, some Bengali staples uh, probably helped her, uh, you know, kind of just ease the pain and the loneliness of uh, being in America in those early days, you know. Uh, and it, it's interesting because in terms of whether this kind of led me to 
this book? I, I think my answer is yes, although I didn't quite realize it until after I was done writing this book, uh, because I came to food writing very unexpectedly five years ago. I never wanted to do this with my life, you know, and it just kind of happened because I needed a job, I needed money and all that stuff. And so, uh, you know, that's kind of how this whole, uh, yeah, line of work came to me. Uh, but early in my career, I really asked myself, okay, well, what has food meant to me in, you know, various parts of my life? And I often found myself just returning to my mother's cooking because it shaped my palate so much. And I realized that, you know, I was so close to her that I absorbed her own humility around her own cooking in the sense that, you know, she always uh, treated her cooking, at least from my observation, as just like the performance of duty. And she didn't really see anything quite special about it. Uh, and, as a result, I did not, you know, quite uh, celebrate what was so special about it until after I became a food writer. And then I understood kind of, you know, the love and care and artistry uh, in that kind of labor of hers, you know. And I think that that sort of sensitivity, I really tried to fold into this book as much as possible. And so I do hope that when my mom reads this book, she's reading it as we speak, uh, that she does see an aspect of her own story reflected in each of these chapters. That's so interesting to hear um, that you came into food journalism kind of, uh, maybe not reluctantly, but it wasn't exactly planned. Um, my immediate reaction, I mean, we do come from different backgrounds, but uh, my parents are Bengali um, and have immigrated here in about the 80s as well. Um, and something that I find so singular, and it's not just exclusive, obviously, to Bengali culture, it's usually ethnic immigrant uh, cuisine. Um, and especially when it comes to, you call it, you know, uh, labor, cultural labor, family labor, things like that. Caregiving, rather, was the, the correct term used for it. Um, there's something so uniquely loving in the act of feeding, especially in a culture that doesn't necessarily say uh, westernized uh, expressions of love. Um, as a child, you really feel that in the way that your mom like literally like mixes the food by hand and literally feeds you by hand. And then, of course, like anybody in this world, you grow up with a certain palate, like you were describing. Um, it just, it's, I feel like this palate in particular comes with um, something a little beyond taste, if that makes sense. So I guess I was just assuming and wanted to know if that was something that informed your interest in food journalism, but if it sort of happened the other way around, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, no, it did definitely happen the other way around. You know, uh, I think that you were actually correct in saying that I came to this line of work reluctantly. So a bit of background is that I grew up wanting to be a film critic. Uh, you know, my late father, who I just mentioned, that uh, he was a cinephile. And so he <laughs> raised me on, uh, you know, a cinephile's diet, let's say, uh, cinematically. And, you know, obviously being Bengali, you know, Satyajitre's uh, films were a big fixture of our household. <laughs> uh, but, you know... Uh, I grew up watching movies, talking about movies all the time. And, you know, as a teenager, I came across the writings of Pauline Kael. And I was just, you know, I found it so electrifying. And I was the kind of dork who would hoard old issues of Entertainment Weekly and everything like that and memorize trivia about the Oscars, uh, you know, in high school. And I really wanted to do that with my life. Uh, and so after I graduated from college in 2014, uh, I started kind of working as a freelance writer covering topics like film and television and music, basically every aspect of the culture except food, right? Uh, because I always saw food writing as the domain of rich, straight, white dudes. And I was like, not, you know, part of that category at all. And I feel like 
I don't know what movie kind of lodged that idea in my head. I think it may have been like Mystic Pizza or something, or, you know, near the end, there's that like dude who's like kind of stuck up coming in the restaurant, you know, and he gives this glowing review. But, you know, I was like, oh, that's what all food writers are like, right? Uh, and so I was like, I can never do that. And, you know, I just never thought of food in that way. Yet, uh, you know, fast forward to 2016, when I'm 24, I get an email from an editor at a site called Food52. And uh, she's just like, yeah, we're looking for a staff writer who's not necessarily a food person, you know, is not an avid cook, is not a restaurant enthusiast, but can just, you know, write about broader culture through the lens of food. And I'm like, well, I would love a full-time culture writing gig with salary and benefits. So let's try this out, you know? And so I took the job, but uh, I felt really... um, uneasy at first and I still feel uneasy five years later you know but uh, I looked around me uh, in kind of just that work environment and I was the only person of color on an editorial staff composed entirely of white women and you know they're all lovely and great uh, you know the best examples of the genre of white women yet uh, I feel as though <laughs> I was just writing from a different center of gravity than they were because you know these are people who like live and breathe cooking and food and I was like well it's food and I was also just like you know my meals the child looks so different from theirs and it was really tough to kind of find my footing early on and so that's why uh you know in my first few months as a food writer I found myself writing so much just about the foods of my childhood and you know what that could tell me about who I am in this world as a queer person of color or whatever and as someone who's Bengali and all that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. uh and you know I often found myself just kind of returning uh to my memories of uh, my mother's cooking and kind of, uh, you know, appreciating her labor in a completely different way. And through that, I was able to realize exactly what you pointed out, which is that, you know, uh, I I don't want to make any kind of broad statements about uh, Bengali culture generally. You know, it's so dangerous. Yeah, I I certainly do think that it's true that, you know, uh, within my family, uh, verbal expressions of love were probably less common than, uh, you know, other forms of expression. And one of them was certainly food. You know, I do think that my mother really did uh, craft all of her meals with, or a lot of her meals, let's say, uh, with uh, a lot of love that I could feel, even if I didn't appreciate it, uh, you know, growing up. But now I do, so... (laughs) I know. And I, I don't know, again, I don't know if your mother is similar than mine, but she likes to remind me constantly of the fact um, that how much I appreciate it now and possibly didn't then. Um, you also say that you started to see this book as a critique of capitalism. It's something you address early on. Um, while the book details the ways in which this system fails to promote and produce a diverse voice of female chefs or food writers, you know, something you kind of already addressed with the noted lovely uh white women of food 52 uh not necessarily something that we're seeing now um and i'm a big fan of food 52 they do all seem like lovely white women um (laughs) but uh they're they're mostly um these are all mostly women that you write about that have sort of pioneered the struggle in the not so far but past. So I'm, I guess my one, my question is, do you think that in a post, you know, Bon Appetit world, uh, this is starting to shift in our contemporary culture? Because I think it is visibly, but I don't know what that means systematically. Yeah, you know, I got to say from the inside, I'm pretty cynical about uh, the food media, or at least the American food media's ability to change just because, you know, within my five years, uh, again, five years is like nothing. I'm a small child compared to the veterans of this industry, right? Uh, You know, I have I've been naive enough to fall for, uh, you know, some statements of, you know, 
uh, from institutions and uh, certain very high profile publications and editors who, you know, claim to really care about quote unquote diverse storytelling and, you know, uh, express a sort of a commitment to getting the stories of people from marginalized communities right. Uh, and yet they have failed me on a personal level usually. And also just, uh, you know, they've failed my peers and my colleagues and so many readers who belong to those very communities that, uh, you know, these publications and institutions purport to represent. And I, it's interesting to kind of just think about last year and what happened in last year being 2020, excuse me. Uh, and what happened in the American food media, because there are so many high profile upheavals at places like Bon Appetit, like you mentioned, and the uh, LA Times food section and others that, you know, I think exposed a lot of people outside to a lot of people outside of uh, the American food media, just how deeply embedded racism and classism and other forms of discrimination are in this industry. Yet, I don't know that things will fundamentally change personally, just because I've seen kind of, um, you know, smaller um, versions of this play out over the past five years. And ultimately, these institutions, they fall back on their old habits, and they kind of self-correct to the way that they were before. And some of these uh, organizations are just beyond repair. You know, there's something that is baked in the DNA, uh, no pun intended, right? <laughs> so, like, uh, to, to each of these institutions that kind of prevents them from really, uh, you know, changing for the better in a substantive way. So I am quite cynical, honestly, and I'm not sure that things are changing. And, you know, I think about this a lot because it's my life, obviously, uh, you know, whether asked for it or not, um, but also because, you know, in my uh, job as like a professor or whatever, you know, I'm like teaching the youth and, you know, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, show them the way uh, and kind of, you know, orient them um, in the right direction and, you know, kind of predict what food media will look like moving forward. And I hope that they understand that, you know, independent food media uh, and uh, food media that exists outside of these institutions and publication names that so many people know, you know, is a path forward that, you know, people can pursue. And I hope that my students and other aspiring food writers, you know, equate writing for independent publications as kind of uh, to success. For listeners who may not know, could you define uh, the food establishment and the food media, the distinction between the two? Totally, if there is a distinction. (laughs) So, (laughs) which I kind of... YouTube. Right, exactly, right, right, totally. Um, Yeah, yeah, because I kind of question whether there is even a distinction between the two in my uh, book. But essentially, the food establishment is, uh, you know, composed of people who sit at the very top of mastheads, or or at least sat, uh, let's say, because, actually, let me take a step back. So the food establishment, uh, the definition that I was kind of working from in this book was, uh, you know, coined by the late, great Nora Ephron, who I believe in 1968, in an essay, kind of defined the food establishment as, uh, you know, being composed of people like Craig Claiborne, who was the New York Times food editor, Uh, beginning in 1957, along with Julia Child, who by then, uh, you know, had this thriving, uh, you know, television show, The French Chef, uh, which began in 1963 and had authored cookbooks, uh, along with James Beard, who many people might know as, uh, you know, a cookbook author who's quite prolific. And also his name is, uh, you know, now on a arguably the most prestigious award that uh, exists within the culinary realm. And so uh, the food establishment was essentially composed of people who were kind of, uh, you know, uh, quite influential uh, within the industry. Uh, Some of them did have kind of 
power like uh, Craig Claiborne had uh, through being at the top of mastheads, but others just had a certain level of celebrity and prominence within the American culture. And as a result, they were so well connected to publishers and other uh, institutions uh, that had a lot of capital um, that, you know, really allowed them to determine American tastes. So that's the American food establishment. The American food media, uh, you know, is, <laughs> again, composed of people like Craig Claiborne of the New York Times and other influential publications of that era and later eras. You know, I think that in the 1980s, you really start uh, to see more influence shift beyond the New York Times food section to places like the aforementioned Bon Appetit, uh, food and wine, and other kind of food glossies. And I still do think that those sorts of magazines and publications uh, have that sort of sway over American taste that they did, uh, you know, many decades ago. So that's the American food media. Although today, you know, the American food media is composed of also or comprised of digital publications and other, you know, a world beyond print media, let's say. (laughs) Definitely. Um, I guess I was also thinking about something the majority of these women seem to have in common is a proclivity for ambition. But I noticed also for privacy, it was generally, um, to me, it seems like they mostly wanted to share their recipes, their cultures more than themselves, Julia Child being an exception, possibly. Um, I'm wondering, why do you think that is? Yeah, wait, could you kind of explain what you mean by, uh, you know, not wanting to share too much of themselves? I'm generalizing a bit amongst the, you know, very diverse uh, variety of women that you write about, but I did, in reading it, kind of notice certain commonalities. Mm -hmm. And and a lot of these women are there for the food. They're there to get the job done. They want to do the job done well, and that speaks to their ambition. Um, But in terms of becoming these, uh, you know, famous figures, being in the spotlight, the way that the press would talk about them, this seemed to be something that they generally didn't want. Um, and I'm just wondering if you also came to that maybe understanding in, in writing this book. Yeah, yeah. If you Do you agree? Do you disagree? Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's a great question. I, I get it. Thank you for explaining. Uh, yeah, I mean, I do think that a lot of these women understood the perils of stardom or, you know, the ways in which, uh, you know, a certain kind of level of celebrity might uh, warp your mind and make you quite obsessed with uh, power and becoming a gatekeeper. Uh, you see that most clearly in the story, at least from my perspective, of Madeleine Kamen, who was a French-born chef and restaurateur and Copic author and television host. Uh, she did many things throughout her career, right? Uh, but she was a brilliant cook and teacher, just, you know, an incredible talent. Yet, you know, as I write about in my chapter, uh, so much of her career was unfairly eclipsed by this perceived conflict that she had with Julia Child because, you know, she began working after Julia Child had really risen to fame and prominence in the American mind. And, you know, Madeline, being from France, uh, she kind of openly questioned why it was that, you know, an American-born woman like Julia Child would become the authority on French cooking for Americans when there were French women like Madeline herself who may have been a better position to have that sort of um, have that sort of uh, you know authority uh, essentially, and you know that kind of outspokenness did not exactly win her a lot of fans within the food establishment, and uh, yet later in her career you start to see Madeline be like you know what 
I I didn't want to be a star. That is such an American thing to do. Instead, I wanted to focus on the work itself because she found pleasure and sanctity in the work itself. You know, just writing about food, teaching students, you know, how to cook and the specificities of, you know, certain French techniques, for example, that she wanted to impress upon her students. The work came first for her. You know, any sort of fame or prominence was just accidental for her. And I found that so gratifying because... You know, coming to this industry as such an outsider, like, five years ago, I was just like, damn, I feel like such a, you know, an imposter. You know, not to be like, oh, imposter syndrome, but really, I did feel like an imposter. (laughs) And, you know, to mitigate that sense of fraudulence, and I can say this openly now because, you know, time distance has, uh, you know, kind of given me this perspective, I realized that I was really chasing uh, institutional recognition, and I wanted people to take me seriously, and I felt as though the best way to make that happen was to get attention from a certain awards bodies, and, you know, be anthologized in uh, certain books and all that kind of stuff, and You know, I was very fortunate that I got that sort of recognition earlier in my career because that opened up a lot of access to capital and opportunity that wasn't otherwise easily available to me just because my name is my Yuxen and like I'm brown, you know, like 12 year old child, you know, (laughs) and like my perspective is so different from most other people's in this industry. Yeah, I realized, you know, after I got all that, that I wasn't actually happy and, you know, having this kind of hardware to my name or whatever didn't exactly, you know, make me sleep better at night, you know? And what I did find pleasure in was the work itself, the writing itself. And that's the reason why I, you know, am doing this with my life partially. (laughs) You know, it's because I do love writing a lot. And I think that spending time with these women's stories just really reminded me of that because there are so many people I see who are also, you know, they they want to be famous and you know they might see uh you know um existing in this small universe of ours called food writing as a as a ticket to that sort of fame yet i don't want that you know uh and i may have wanted it once upon a time but now it's like no i just want you know happiness <laughs> so elusive and i think the best way to chase it is to focus on the work and a lot of these women taught me that I think that's a beautiful, beautiful answer. Um, and I, I guess i super not intentional, but I'm going to challenge you because it brings you to the next question. Well, not necessarily, but um, maybe it's a specifically immigrant mentality. But it also seemed to me that aside from Julia Child, again, most of these women, or maybe even Julia, most of these women, no, not Julia, most of these women, like you wrote of Elena Zaleta, for example, didn't uh-huh. just find delight in these activities. You write this. She discovered a more practical truth. Cooking could provide a means to survive. And given by the challenges faced uh, by these women, you know, certain considered pioneers of, of this field, do you think they sort of got robbed of cooking as a delight? Because I feel like I am privileged to, cons- I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of, you know, culinary writing and, and I, I like to cook myself, but the, the joy that it brings for me is that it's a simple delight. Um, and I, and, and I may perhaps it's just because I'm not like a pioneer in these like destructive times. Um, but I feel sort of sad for them that it had to be more of a tool for survival. Um, and yes, cultural, pr- pr- cultural pride, but still I sort of feel like they got robbed of it being a delight, but maybe that was a misreading. No, no, I, I so appreciate you reading it like that, because I think uh, very few readers of mine thus far have, uh, you know, interpreted uh, each of these stories in that way. And I think it's a very uh, fair and apt reading. You know, what I would say is that, 
you know, for a lot of these women, uh, cooking did begin as this kind of, you know, drudgery and this work that they were just performing because they needed to, you know, make ends meet and they needed to make money in some way. But they eventually, you know, came to a place where they were uh, materially, uh, you know, well off enough that, you know, cooking could provide them pleasure. That's at least the sense that I got uh, in spending time with a lot of these women's stories, which is that, you know, in the case of someone like Elena Zelieta, you know, she was working very hard early on in her career. Yet, you know, once she reached a certain level of prominence, you know, she was able to uh, find a lot of pleasure in the work itself. And I think that, you know, uh, for a lot of these women, you know, the same kind of maxim applies, which is that, you know, the work did eventually bring them a lot of pleasure even if at first, you know, there were certain uh, challenging and trying circumstances that may have pushed them uh, into this field. And it's funny, I think that maybe that can be said too of possibly your mother and possibly my mother as well, because again, I'm thinking about how you, mm-hmm. you know, sort of n- n- like addressed that at first these 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 methods of care were, were a thing of duty. Right. Um, but they went on to, I think become something so joyful I hope yeah I hope that's true for my mother too you know I mean I was just with her this past weekend and you know I think that you know nowadays she might uh derive pleasure from cooking or at least cooking for me you know and you know it's it's nice to see that uh after seeing so many years of just her feeding this uh, large clan of people you know I always I always wondered you know when she's taking care of others uh, if she's able to take care of herself you know so i hope she is i think so because also i also again like to cook and i'm i'm the person in the friend group i'm constantly inviting over friends for dinner parties and everyone's always sort of especially i think this maybe is a millennial thing or maybe it's my friend group they're all kind of shocked they're like wow you actually like do recipes and like it's not just like pasta or whatever you know and i'm just like no cooking for me my meals are what drive me in my day they're the best part of my day why wouldn't I put like joy into into them and and that's what makes me care about um you know food writing in general um but I I I guess a lot of people see it more as this dutiful like I guess I gotta sustain myself but and I I think that kind of sucks yeah I mean I gotta be real with you like you know as someone who again did not ever intend to come to this uh, line of work I am that very person you talk about you know the one that's just like (laughs) yeah okay I gotta feed myself so I can like go to sleep and then survive another day you know just go through this whole thing you know uh like Mm -hmm. day in and day out and uh, I've only like now in the past year like started to try and let myself find joy in the activity of cooking you know of course that Mm -hmm. results in many burnt dinners fire alarms going off whatever it's okay Uh, but you know for so much of my life I just saw food as a means for survival and nothing more nothing less Uh, yet now I am allowing myself to you know really uh, find find a lot of love and delight uh, in food as an object. I'm trying my best to kind of, you know, bring that to the page too, because when I first got started in this line of work, I was like, damn, I do not know how to write about food as an object. You know, that is like one of the toughest parts of this work because, 
you have to really avoid cliche. You can't describe things as delicious or toothsome. Like, oh my goodness, you know, those words mean nothing, you know? But then if you try to be too inventive and, you know, go on thesaurus.com and, you know, uh, you know, go, uh, go with some like crazy word, readers are going to be like, what? Damn, this person is like this creative writing 101 and it's really bad, right? And so striking that balance, you know, is really tough. And I feel like the best way to work through that anxiety that I have as a writer when engaging with food as an object is to just loosen up and let myself have fun and, you know, be as sensual as possible and, uh, you know, let myself find delight because I think that, you know, I want to give my readers the opportunity to experience that sort of delight, especially if I'm writing for a reader like yourself who actually, you know, does love food and love the act of cooking a lot because that whole concept for so long was just so foreign to me, you know, because that's just not my relationship to cooking or hasn't been historically maybe it will be moving forward we'll see you know not holding my breath <laughs> i mean i th- i think you achieve it in this book i will say that okay. um something else i was thinking about uh many of these women also face a sort of general cliche and truism that they're in wh- where where their ambition towards their careers eventually come to impact their home life you know specifically their marriages their domestic situations mm-hmm. um with the exception of Martella Hazan who of her husband says Victor does not take me out of the page and put himself in my students say when they read my books it's like listening to me which I loved right. um and, but in many ways this is not the the story for a lot of other women in this book um and I'm wondering if, in many ways, as a man writing this book, you seem to gift many of these other women with the husbands they never had. <laughs> Do you ever think about that? Oh, Do you think that's true? That's fascinating. I never thought of it that way. You know, I will say there is one other husband uh, in this book who is quite supportive, and that's a uh, Muhammad Batmanglij, who is a Najmi Batmanglij, uh, Najmi Batmanglij's husband. Excuse me. Um, you know, Najmi was from Iran, and so was Muhammad, and you know they. Uh, together started a publishing house uh, in the 80s when she was trying to publish uh, an Iranian cookbook of hers. Uh, And, you know, they have been creative partners for decades now. Uh, But yeah, you know, I think Najmi's story and Marcella's story, they both run counter to a lot of the other uh, narratives in this, uh, you know, book uh, where you see women who are really dealing with spouses who might not necessarily be sympathetic to, uh, you know, their ambitions, or maybe just those ambitions are too large for a marriage to sustain, let's say. Uh, And so it's interesting that you would say, uh, you know, I'm kind of gifting uh, these women husbands. I never thought of it that way, just because, uh, you know, as I write in this book, uh, my relationship to gender and gender identity, gender expression, whatever you want to call it, is complicated uh, as a result of, you know, the fact that I am queer. You know, I know that to this world I present as a man, yet I think that, you know, the way that I look doesn't necessarily reflect the inner weather here, you know. Uh, But it's Mm -hmm. interesting because that whole sort of... The inner weather, I love that. (laughs) Yeah, thank you, you know. Uh, And I didn't quite have words to, you know, describe that uh, when I first began this book because that was a question that... A lot of people ask me, it's like, why are you as a man writing this, you know? And I think it's it's totally fair to ask who materially benefits from, you know, telling what stories. That's totally fine. Yet, you know, I didn't realize, I guess, that, you know, my queerness has always, uh, you know, made me gravitate towards the stories of uh, women because those are the ones with which I identify more strongly, uh, especially more strongly than, you know, the stories of men, let's say, you know. Uh, And so I do hope that my readers kind of uh, 
you know, have that sort of generosity of understanding, uh, you know, when they uh, approach this book, because, you know, I do think that there will probably be some skepticism from readers who are like, oh, this dude is, you know, just like, you know, <laughs> being this interloper, you know, like telling the stories of these women, who does he think he is, you know, yet I think that uh, it, there are more complicated factors at play, you know, but uh, in, in general, I want to say that I really did not want to make the husbands, uh, you know, too prominent a character in any of these chapters unless they were truly germane to, you know, each woman's creative work. In the case of someone like Marcella and uh, Najbia, you know, they certainly were, yet, you know, uh, I think the personal matters, uh, you know, the personal life section of Wikipedia page, let's say, you know, I I, uh, didn't want to dwell on that too much just because it might distract from the main focus of each of these chapters. Yeah, I don't think you dwelt on them, but I guess what I, I mean to say is that there is a certain, and this is, you know, I, I talk to authors and writers a lot, like nonfiction or fiction alike, um, and there's a certain um, care and lovingness and tenderness that's very clear in in between yourself and and them, um, with, you know, some of whom you've actually got to speak to in person, some of whom you never got to. Um, and so hearing their stories of struggle and people perhaps not showing them the opposite of that, um, I think that's what I was just no, trying to I, say. Like, it seemed like you were, yeah. I totally get you, you know, and I think that, that just in kind of talking about this and thinking out loud, you know, I think I've arrived at a sort of answer for your really amazing question, which is that you know, maybe it's more uh, appropriate for me to say that, you know, these women felt like my mothers in some way, you know, and like, uh, not to like force them to adopt me or whatever, you know, but like, Mm -hmm. you know, it it ties back to what we began this conversation with, which is that, you know, my relationship to my mother, and my empathy for her struggles, which I will never understand the extent of just because I was born into relative luxury, uh, you know, because of the hardships that she endured in America and back in India, you know, uh, that informs a lot of my approach to each of these stories, you know, and uh, I really try to be as tender and loving in rendering each of these stories as I would with my own mother's story, you know, and I didn't want to patronize, uh, you know, patronize to them in some way in framing each of these stories either. And that's what I was trying to be quite careful of too. And, you know, that functions in so many ways, like, you know, as I write in the introduction, uh, one sort of patronizing, uh, kind of way of framing stories that I leaned on early in my career is by positioning certain women as like forgotten or whatever, overlooked, you know, and that's kind of, you know, really caught on over the past few years. Just like, you know, you see certain publications, you know, have whole series dedicated to like overlooked women, quote unquote. And, you know, my question now is like overlooked by whom, forgotten by whom, you know, Uh, because there are people who belong to the same communities that a lot of these women belong to who, you know, they, they know these women's names, you know, and I want to make sure that I'm making room for that kind of reader as well, even in my framing, you know, because I don't know, I, I think of my mother so often, it's like, would she want to be written about <laughs> with that sort of like kind of patronizing, condescending uh, distance? No, of course not. And the same extends to each of these women. So I love that. Um, in the chapter on Julie Sunny, you identify how in 1824 recipes for curry refer to a slop of spice gravy. Jane Holt of the New York Times described curry as, and hilariously, I think, a rare oriental ragout in 1941. <laughs> 
<laughs> Amazing. I, I When I saw that, I was like, I have to include that somehow. It's a perfect phrase. <laughs> perfect. I absolutely is, or, laughed out loud. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you about food lexicon. You know, we live in a world now populated by terms like stir fry. You know, the popularization of sushi probably taught folks much more about fish names than there was to start. Tandoori's popularized, you know, uh, all sort of dim sum, all sorts of things. And, um, you know, I'm even thinking about how on a trip to Delhi once, I went to a KFC that served extra spicy Indianized chicken. Like, oh, my God. And, like, probably called it something like curry chicken or whatever and uh, I totally understand it was a marketing tool but I guess in what ways do you think the lexicon ought to be preserved or adapted oh yeah oh that's a great question uh how it ought to be preserved or adapted you know I will say this uh, when it comes to a word like curry you know there are so many people within the subcontinent broadly and certainly within India who you know have proudly use that term and they use it to describe uh you know certain ingredients or mixes with which they cook you know and i think that i I hope that uh writers like myself in the diaspora will respect that rather than saying you know curry doesn't exist you know and uh, all that kind of stuff because making those Mm -hmm, sorts of mm -hmm. broad brush statements you know can so often just box out certain readers or kind of uh, reveal uh, the limitations of your own perspective, you know. And so I think that uh, sometimes that sort of uh, gatekeeping on the language level can happen within the diaspora and, you know, communities who uh, are very far away from, uh, you know, home countries. And uh, I think that you know, we, we ought to have that sort of understanding and compassion, you know, but that, that's just kind of one example of, you know, I don't want to say a disturbing trend, but so, it's certainly kind of, um, <laughs> you know, a, a trend that I've, I've noticed among, uh, you know, some people I uh, call colleagues and peers of mine who are just like, curry, you know, stop saying curry, it doesn't exist. It's like, well, it does exist for certain uh, cooks, you know, and, and I hope that kind of, yeah. you know, generosity extends to, uh, you know, other uh, forms of talking about food. That said, you know, I do think that, uh, there are certain words that should be done away with uh, in general. For example, uh, you know, two words that I tell my students to always, uh, or to never use, excuse me, or to always refrain from using, let's say, is, uh, you know, are exotic and ethnic, mm. you know, just generally, mm. because, you know, exotic, you know, it's the same question as uh, overlooked and kind of forgotten. It's like exotic to whom, you know, usually uh, there's this presumption of a white, uh, you know, middle to upper middle class palette there and you know you want to make sure that you are being quite careful and maybe critical when you're using a word like exotic to describe a food same deal with ethnic you know what exactly does that mean to convey is that a way of just you know uh, further othering uh, you know a certain uh, community's food and so i do hope that those sorts uh, sorts of uh, quirks in language, let's say, to be charitable about it, you know, kind of disappear from American food writing or English language food writing moving forward because, you know, they have in some corners, but not quite yet, but... Um, in the afterword and acknowledgement, you thank your editor for rightfully suggesting this book should not include any recipes. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that was the right move? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, well, first of all, it's because, you know, I'm, I'm not a good cook. <laughs> so that's why it's the right move. You know? <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I hope I've been uh, clear about that, you know, throughout this conversation, which is that, you know, I have 
become a little more, or a little less timid, let's say. You know, I was going to say more confident, but that's not quite true. A little less timid, uh, you know, in front of a stove in the past, like, year and a half. Uh, yeah, you know, I'm not exactly Emerald over here, you know. Uh, but uh, I, it's interesting because when I was shopping this book around three years ago now, Wow Wild, uh, I was meeting with so many editors at, uh, you know, publishers who put out a lot of food books and, you know, they're usually cookbooks. They were very, very selective about which food narrative nonfiction books they put out, right? And usually, you know, the presumption was that those books would have recipes because that is just kind of, you know, um, a way to make these uh, narrative food nonfiction books commercially viable, at least for in the eyes of these editors, you know? And I was so lucky that, you know, when I met with my great editor, Melanie Tortoroli at Norton, I, you know, three years ago, she was just like, so I see you've got this whole thing about recipes and this proposal, and that's not who you are. You know, let's not try to mm -hmm. kind of, you know, cram you into this sort of, you know, put you in this box that you don't belong in. You know, that's just not your sensibility as a writer. And, you know, um, I'm paraphrasing here, but she was basically like, let's honor kind of, you know, your, like how you think about food and, you know, why you write about it and in the first place. And it's that, you know, I have tried my best uh, to, you know, throughout my uh, career in food writing to use food as a way to just talk about culture more broadly and, uh, you know, various <laughs> inequities that are embedded in uh, America, you know, and, uh, so she was just like, we don't need recipes for this. And I was really happy to see that just because that's not kind of the writer who I am, you know, for me in the whole food writing equation, the writing comes before the food for me, you know, the writing about food as an object, like I said earlier, you know, it gives me anxiety and I try to have fun with it now, but early on I was like, no, 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 you know, I, I care about the people who make the food more than the food itself as the object. Uh, so that was kind of my first thing. And the second thing, you know, is that, once I was done writing the book, I realized that, you know, just kind of tacking on one recipe to the end of each chapter just would have felt so gimmicky. And, you know, it, it almost feels as though I am, as a writer, kind of flattening each woman's very rich, complicated, uh, you know, legacy to just like, you know, this one recipe. And I'm like, okay, you mm. know, you this for this uh, woman's story to mean anything uh you know it has to have this service component for readers uh, that is kind of the implication that i felt you know putting a recipe uh in each chapter uh, would have had and i didn't want that to you know kind of be the case for uh my reader and instead what i really do hope this book does is that it prods my readers to seek out the cookbooks by these women especially the ones that are out of print and you know in an ideal world <laughs> This book, this dinky little book of mine, will create such a demand for, you know, those uh, cookbooks that are long out of print that they will suddenly, you know, have a sort of resurgence and they will find uh, a new readership long after each of these women have uh, left this world. So, Thank you, Mike. This is great. Um, Weird Era listeners, Library St. Henry Books listeners, you can pick up a copy on the Weird Era shelf in our very beautiful uh, cookbook section as well um, and thank you again so much this is great thank you so much I appreciate it